Welcome to the Naked Truth Real Talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and the conversation I'm sharing with you today has been a long time coming. I've known Kelly Casanova for several years. I first saw her dancing back when she was still Kelly Buckwalter and still competing. Then I would see her at events in California and on the West Coast, and then I eventually moved to the Bay Area, where she lives and teaches. I was privileged enough to be an apprentice judge for a year under her guidance through the Next Generation Swing Dance Club, and she is smart, incredibly knowledgeable, and very real and authentic. I only had a few occasions to chat with her about the dance, but I always found her to be thoughtful, passionate, insightful, and very grounded. So when we started this show, she was someone who was always on my list of potential guests. Well, finally, we found a time to sit down and chat, and we chatted for longer than I planned, and I still have more I want to talk with her about. If you don't know who Kelly is, she is a two-time U.S. Open Swing Dance champion. She placed first in the Classic Division in 1988 with her partner Dominic Yin, and first in the Open Jack and Jill in 1994 with our friend Tom Paderna. She was inducted into the National Swing Dance Hall of Fame in 2004, and in 2006, she was also inducted into the California Swing Dance Hall of Fame. Kelly has been teaching West Coast Swing locally throughout the San Francisco Bay Area since 1981, but she has also spent much of her career traveling throughout the United States, competing, teaching, judging, and chief judging at a variety of major national conventions. In 1999, she hosted her own convention called Swing Break, where she broke with tradition and allowed dancers to compete as either a lead or a follow, regardless of their gender identification. She has been a strong advocate for degendering competitions and instrumental in influencing other event directors and swing organizations to eliminate gender bias in competitions. In this conversation, I asked her about her early career, how she got started, and what the swing scene was like then. We chatted a bit about the Bay Area community and how it has changed over time. She told me about her experiences winning at the Open, and we talked about why she stopped competing. I asked her about her event, Swing Break, and why it didn't last, and that led to a conversation about what this dance really is. Here now is my conversation with Kelly Casanova. So, Kelly Casanova, welcome to the show. Thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Eric. I've been wanting to sit down with you for a while, and just our schedules have not aligned until now, so I'm glad that finally happened. Um, I wanted to to start with you because you have such a rich history, and there's so much I want to cover with you. Um, but let's start at the beginning. You know, I think a lot of people know you these days um, both as a chief judge at a lot of big competitions, which we'll talk about eventually, and also as the mother of Samantha Buckwalter, your your daughter, who's been very successful. But let's hear about your story. How did you get started in dance and in West Coast Swing in particular? Um, well, I like the way you say I have a, a very rich history, such a nice way of, of saying I'm old. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> Uh, but no, that, that's that's uh, that's fun. Um, well, let's see. Uh, I started um, taking a dance class at UC Berkeley my last quarter when they still had quarters in the late seventies. I had been um, a track and field person. I ran cross country and um, and track, uh, and then I got injured, couldn't do that anymore. So I tried a couple different classes, and I got into a social dance class. My last 
quarter there and I met a fellow named Bob Demjanovic who would go into San Francisco on Saturday to take West Coast swing lessons at a, um, a bar called the Jolly Friar in San Francisco. I don't know if it's still there on 9th and Irving. And then afterwards, um, we'd go over to the Avenue Ballroom, which was uh, on Terravel Street. And we would uh, take the jitterbug class and then dance mostly West Coast Swing, because that's what we liked, but also jitterbug. And in the uh, the class of like, I don't know, eight or 10 people that I took at the Jolly Friar, I met a couple other people who, um, one of them was David Anderson, who was interested in teaching classes at UC Berkeley. He was also a graduate there, uh, graduated ahead of me a couple of years. And um, so just made some connections that way and started teaching with David for the UC Berkeley uh, dance club that we formed. And we brought in Tony to do some intermediate classes and David and I would do the beginning classes. And ultimately what happened when I graduated, um, I got a job in the city. I actually have a degree in landscape architecture. And because it was right when the recession hit, um, after about a year, I got laid off. And at that time, the owner of the Avenue Ballroom, a fellow named Oz Kuset, actually his name is Joel, but he went by Oz, um, wanted to delegate the classes. And so I ended up taking over both the jitterbug classes and the West Coast Swing classes and running parties. Uh, and that was at the same time that Diane Jarmelo was doing all the ballroom classes um, mm. before the metronome. So that's how I got into it is just through a social dance class at UC Berkeley. And what was the dance community like at that time, both in the Bay Area as well as, you know, regionally and, and even across the nation? Well, um, first, one big caveat, which is um, I've listened to a lot of your uh, guests on the show, and mm -hmm. a lot of them have just incredible memories for, you know, not only the date of a specific routine, but the outfit that was worn and who <laughs> the MC was and all this stuff. And to me, um, the last 40-odd years just are a big mishmash. It's kind of like a one big groundhog day <laughs> for me. Um, they, so I, I don't, I, you know, if anybody says, no, that's not what it was, uh, you know, they might be right. I mean, one of the things listening to your podcast is, has kind of come out for me is, you know, the, the movie where there's a crime and they interview all the different witnesses and everybody has a completely different take on it, but it's all yeah. true. Right. Yeah, that that's what your podcast sound like to me. It's <laughs> like uh, um, they're all true. Everyone's speaking their own truth, and it's right. their reality and how they remember it. Um, but it's like one facet. So I'm just putting out the disclaimer that this is just one little prism of my experience because a lot of other people in the Bay Area might might be seeing it differently. Sure. Um, but for me, uh, all that being said. I think that um, my experience was that the Avenue Ballroom had people that were in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, mm -hmm. And there were a couple people that were older, but they were, they were the uh, exception to the rule. Right. And, um, and then the scene itself, well, Tony, Tony was a member of the Bay Swingers. 
And so he took, you know, the classes that we had at UC Berkeley uh, brought in a lot of the people that became the founders of the Next Gen Swing Dance Club. People like um, Rosemary, Steve Wong, the guy that um, that came up with the motto Next Generation Swing Dance Club, um, you know, Nick Lawrence, uh, I think Art Snyder was in there, Marla for sure. Um, a whole whole bunch of people took those classes and they were really excited about the dance. And Tony took us on a field trip to the Bay Swingers. And I remember when we walked in, um, everybody was stunned because the majority of the people there, and this was back when they danced to live bands and things like that. Uh, the majority of people dancing were older, it seemed to me. Now, of course, me being in my 60s now, <laughs> <laughs> I would not classify them as old, but as right. a 20 something, um, you know, UC Berkeley uh, student, uh, they all looked old to me. And mm -hmm. uh, I remember a lot of them came up to me and said, oh, we're so happy to see some young people because we thought the dance was going to die out with us. So mm -hmm. they actually thought, you know, they were a dying breed. Um, and so that was my experience there. And then also, um, at the time going to the Peninsula Social Club that was run at the time by Phil Trow and Ed Serio. Um, you know, they that was also a little bit of an older crowd as well um, at that time. But I didn't hang out there quite as much because that was a little bit uh, longer drive for me and my scene was more at the Avenue Ballroom at that time. Right. So, um, yeah, so it was a, an older group, and then the younger group came in, and then they got all enthused and, you know, formed the next gen. And those are basically a lot of my my uh, tribe, my, <laughs> my peers from the Bay Area anyway. And it was a pretty active thing. I mean, there were a lot of – we would go to Ashkenaz uh, to go dancing sometimes, uh, different clubs around as well. But I think um, – Mostly the Avenue Ballroom and top of Beardsley's and then Bay Swingers at the time were the places that, that I remember actually dancing the most at. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've talked with other people about how, particularly in the Bay Area, it seems like there's an influx of a lot of younger dancers lately. And uh, it, it sounds like in your time, there was maybe a gap where younger dancers were not coming. I mean, obviously the people who were doing the dance when you jumped in, they probably started when they were a little younger uh, would be my guess. And then yeah, started getting I, I older so. and there was probably like a gap so that when you started coming in with your peers, they were like, Ooh, like new young people. Um, right. Right. And it, I wonder if there's, if there's been that kind of pattern over the years, I don't know if you've noticed that if like, a sort of cohort comes in and ages, and then a new cohort comes in a few years later. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've I, seen I do, that. I do. I have seen that to a certain extent. I mean, I've never taken a break. Um, I know, like mm -hmm. Tom was saying, that he took a, a break from dancing. I, I never did that. I mean, I've been here the whole time. So sometimes when you're in it, you don't see it as much as if you go away and then come back. Right. <laughs> but I. I do think that um, it is cyclical, and I think a lot of times, um, you know, if a parent does something, the kid doesn't necessarily want to do it because it's not cool because the parent was doing it, 
Um, and so that as one generation gets into one form of music, especially, um, it doesn't appeal to their kids. And mm -hmm. if they think that activity involves music that they're not interested in, then they're going to go find something else that's more uh, current to, you know, what their generation likes. And right. I think one of the things that's interesting about West Coast Swing is that the music does change uh, with the current um, popular music of the day. And so that it does lend itself to bringing in newer people or, or being attractive, at least, to newer people. Um, but I, I don't I, I don't really know how much the Internet and the YouTube and, you know, YouTube and all that Instagram exposure about dance has to do with um, proliferating it these days. But of course, back when I started, um, as the dinosaurs were roaming the earth, <laughs> we, did, we didn't quite, we didn't have that kind of a networking service. It was either word of mouth through friends or flyers posted on things or, you know, you'd go to one dance and hear about something else because there was a flyer on the table about some right. other activity. So it was a lot more limited, I think, um, than it is now. And of course, now it's, it's totally exploded. Yeah. And having run one of those communities in the Bay Area, pretty much all of my advertising was on Facebook. <laughs> like, I don't, I put out postcards and I don't think they ever really got picked up. It was all internet um, based, you know, organic growth. It's yeah, that's been a really hard transition for me. <laughs> I mean, I I still have my postcards, but I uh, my my daughter has dragged me into the century, kicking and screaming, and so now I uh, I have learned how to do Facebook event pages for my monthly dance, and yes. um, and you know, fortunately, I do have people that are much more technologically savvy than me, and they can kind of uh, post and share and friend and all that kind of yeah. stuff so that the word does get out so that that helps it also helps that i've just been around for so long i mean sometimes like uh, at the last class i taught uh, here in santa rosa I saw a new person i said hi how'd you hear about me and they, they said oh i heard about you 10 years ago right right <laughs> i'm like oh, oh great <laughs> it took you 10 years to get here you know? yeah. that's interesting but um you know whatever works uh you know so there is a certain amount of word of mouth um and then of course all the younger people do 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 the you know social media thing so that right. that helps a whole lot yeah and it seems like some of these and i think not just next gen but some of the clubs that have been around a little longer have also had a little more difficulty adapting to more modern forms of of engaging the community um and we have talked on this show before about some of those clubs that have been around a long time and and a lot of them formed you know around that in the 80s or the early 90s and um from what i understand next generation swing dance club formed like you said there was already the the what were they the bay swingers was kind of the well, predominant the group. were there first. Yeah. They and then top of Beardsley. So those two were the, the two two groups that I I remember most. Yeah. And so when NextGen started, what was the intent? What, why start a new club when there was already two groups in the area? Well, for that, you'd have to talk to somebody like uh, Marla or, or David Anderson, or those mm -hmm. people that are still around because um, I was 
really busy at that time. I mean, even though I'm like member number 41 or something like that of the club, mm. they, they formed the year that um, Dominic Yen and I were preparing for the U.S. Open to dance in classic division. And mm. I also had had a baby the year before, Samantha, in 87. So I was a single mom taking care of my kid, teaching dance classes and preparing for the U.S. Open. And I was very much aware that the club was forming and all of that, but my focus was someplace else. And so um, I just remember them wanting to do things a little differently than than the base swingers had had done things. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I do want to put a plug in for the club. I think that they they really were motivated with really great uh, intentions, and they followed through really ethically. I mean, they mm-hmm. have. One of the things that I think has made that club so successful is they have what's called um, a founders uh, group. I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of the founders. There's, there's a bunch of them. And their whole mission is to like, kind of be a resource for whoever is running the club as to why, how the club got started, why it got started, what are the you know mission statements, what are they trying to achieve, that sort of thing. So to kind of keep a history or a history historical record of the club mm-hmm. and I think that served them really well. Um, they also have a lot of transparency. I mean, every year they print out to all the members exactly how much money they took in both from the club dances and stuff and also from the convention and where it went. So mm-hmm. everything's above board. And some of the clubs that I have known, not just here in California, but around the country that have imploded, have imploded because they they didn't have, um, you know, a treasurer that was audited and and records that were transparent and things like that. So I think the club is really healthy in that respect. And also, you know, always searching for new new blood on the board. So right. that, you know, for things like social media, you know, people of uh, the founders don't aren't necessarily the best people to go to for creating a website or a Facebook page, but some of the newer members, you know, that's not a big deal for them. They know how to do that. So reaching out to the next generation, which was part of the whole idea behind it is to, to keep it going and not let right. it stagnate. But um, as far as the actual mission statement, I don't remember what it was. Um, I, I'm sure if you look it up in the the club bylaws, you, you can see it. I should probably know, but <laughs> I, I, I did at one point, but I've forgotten. <laughs> well, I mean, it's essentially just to, to spread, um, you know, swing dancing within, I don't know if it specifies the Bay Area. I think it's just to spread uh, an awareness and appreciation of swing dancing. Um, not even specific right, and, to and West to Coast swing, it. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, and just to keep it going. I mean, and, and just to, yeah, just like you said, to support uh, venues that do that. And I think the club has done a, a really good job of supporting the, the different professionals in the area. Um, I, I was never on the board of the club because uh, rightly so it was a conflict of interest since I was a professional and, you know, I had a, a, a personal stake in, you know, my business. Um, I shouldn't have a say on the board, but I'm, I've been very fortunate that many of the people on the board I consider my friends and the founders I consider my friends. And so we've had a lot of informal conversations about things. And I've certainly, I think I've been a resource as far as um, 
for the club is that you know how things might be perceived from the professional's point of view mm -hmm. and that's just you know just one point of view there, there's you know many 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 different aspects to consider in the club's policies but um, I've been an active member ever since then and you know they hire me every once in a while to teach or DJ or something like that like they do with the other instructors in the area as you're aware yeah I understand the uh, conflict of interest policy, and I, I think it's probably helped preserve some of the integrity of the club. Um, I have to say, though, since I'm on a podcast called The Naked Truth, that I feel like there's a missed opportunity in that people like yourself who have been very successful in in teaching people how to dance, in building community, that you aren't given a voice on the board, um, that there's some knowledge and skill that is going to be lost because you are not allowed to have a voting, you know, you're not allowed to be a voting member of the board. Because um, I feel like there, there are lots of great community member or community leaders or teachers who could add a lot and take their their wisdom or their their knowledge gained from running a community or, or building a community to next gen, but because they can't serve as voting members, they might not do that. Um, I don't really agree with that. And the re okay. reason why I don't is because just because I'm not a voting member doesn't mean I don't have some some influence. Sure. Um, I get I get to put my two cents in and since a lot of the people on the board in the past have been my students um, or founders that know me pretty well, not so much anymore because, you know, it's newer people. But mm -hmm. in the past, um, you know, if I felt like there was something that uh, I wanted to say something about or have an opinion about, um, I would just pick up the phone and call people, you know, right. um, and say, hey, you know, I see that this issue is coming up. Did you guys consider it from this point of view or what impact it's going to have on the competitors or the, the teachers or, or whatever? Um, and I always found that the people that I talked to were very receptive and, mm -hmm. and appreciative of the information. Um, and then they would take it to the board and the board's meetings and bring it up and then they could discuss it and decide whether it was a valid point or not. Um, so I never felt like I, I didn't have a voice. I, most of the time, um, and I kind of use this philosophy in my classes as well. I, I don't encourage unsolicited advice. <laughs> I, I wait for people to ask me. And so the majority of time when things like this have come up with the club, it's because one of the board members have picked up the phone and called me and said, hey, what do you think about this? Um, so that's more the rule. And I'm happy to serve as a resource um, for the club. Um, on any of the issues that, that they think might be relevant uh, or that I might have, you know, some some input that could be constructive. Um, so that, it kind of goes, it's a two-way street. It goes both ways. And now I feel a little less connected, um, not, not completely, but just a little less because I don't know if you've had this experience, but it used to be I would go to a club dance and I knew absolutely every person on the floor. Right. I could tell you their names. And now I go to uh, local dances and it's like most of the people I don't know by their first name. I don't know mm -hmm. where they came from or 
what their history is or any of that. And it's it's kind of striking to me that uh, that happened gradually. I'm not right. sure why, um, but it's it's great that we have all these new people. I just wish I knew more of them. <laughs> yeah. Do you so. think it's that there's more people just in general? So there's just more people that you don't know, or is it that a lot of the people that you know aren't aren't dancing anymore, or both? Well, it's a little bit of both. Um, one is because uh, the club the club dancers have moved from where they mm-hmm. used to be. Uh, to a new location, which is farther, much farther away from where I live. So I don't actually attend the club dances. I haven't for a while since they moved out to Danville. Um, it's just it's just too far from where I live. Um, so obviously, geographically, it attracts people from around that area or maybe even the South Bay. Um, some people, that, and I don't get down to the South Bay much anymore. So um, the, the geography plays a part in it. Um, and yes, it's true that a lot of the people that I uh, used to dance with, uh, I don't see anymore. Um, and I think a large part of that, I know, and I was listening to your last podcast with uh, Tom and Gail, and Tom was saying, you know, it's life changes and, you know, people people get married and have kids and other interests and things like that. And e- even though I believe that's true, I do believe a lot of it is the change in the music. Um, right. You know, some people just don't resonate with certain kinds of music, and so it isn't appealing for them to go dancing anymore because they're not inspired by the music that they hear. And right. so that those people are going to go either find another place to go dancing that has the music they like or some other activity. Um, so I think it's a little bit of, of both. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the geography of the Bay Area... It's funny when I tell people about the Bay Area community because we're really talking about a group of like sub communities, right? I mean, right. if you live in North Bay, you may never go to San Jose, um, and yet you're a part of the same community. So it's very geographically isolated, um, but at the same time, very interconnected with dances like Next Gen, where a lot of people will go, you know, come together around that dance. Right. So. I mean, it's it's interesting that I've lived in quite a few cities in the Bay Area, uh, everything from Sunnyville to Oakland to Berkeley to San Francisco to Windsor and Napa. I mean, I've lived in all those locations and a couple in between. Um, so you're absolutely right. There are these, you know, communities within the Bay Area that um, provide everything people need so they don't really have to go other places. But, you know, avid dancers will drive if there's good dancing. So yeah. um, the avid, you know, the the, the hungry uh, dancers <laughs> will will find a way to get there. Yes, absolutely. Well, you mentioned that you were not as involved with the founding of Next Gen because you yourself were an avid dancer and preparing a routine uh, for the U.S. Open. Um, how did you come to put together that routine with Dominic Dominic Yin, and what was it like to win? Um. Well, it was surreal to win. Uh, we- <laughs> We, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And, and Dominic and I really liked dancing together. And he asked if I wanted to do this routine. And I said, sure, why not? Because <laughs> I didn't know any better. Um, and uh, so we just listened to different music and picked the song that we liked. And he did most of the um, outline choreography. And then I filled in a lot of the the more detailed stuff. 
it was very much a collaborative effort, but I would say he was the main driver on it. He was very thoughtful and musical and methodical about how he put things together. And um, I remember we were very happy with it and we performed it for all of our friends and everyone hated it. <laughs> Why? Yeah, I just, they, they hated the music. They said it wasn't swing. A lot of people will, will love that. Um, they said it wasn't <laughs> swing. Um, they hated the music. They hated the intro. They wanted us to change pretty much everything. And it, after after we did it, we looked at each other and, you know, we heard all this uh, critical feedback, um, which, you know, were from the movers and shakers in the, in the Bay Area at the time. And we basically just said, well, too bad. We like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's what we're going to perform. We're not, we didn't change a thing. We just said, okay, well, then we won't win and we won't place, and that's okay. This is this is us, you know. Um, so I went down there just hoping to get through the routine without messing it up. Um, what what I don't think too many people know is the only time that we ever got through the routine without screwing it up was the finals at the open wow. <laughs> in the semifinals we made a mistake um and then every time after that when we performed it we made a mistake um so sometimes timing is everything you know so we we did it and my partner um dominic was a competitive swimmer and he, he was extremely competitive i i am not i'm sort of anti-competition which is a whole nother story but um he wouldn't. He didn't want me to watch any of the other routines on the floor before we danced. He thought uh, they would psych me out, and he was probably right. They probably would have psyched me out. So I didn't see anybody else perform, um, so I had no idea what was on the floor. And so we got out there and we did it. And I was just so thrilled that we didn't mess it up. I was I was on cloud nine, and then um, when we found out we won, it was like you've got to be kidding. <laughs> Um, so that was, that was a hoot. And then the whole, the whole group from the Bay area that had come down to watch the U S open and also to, to support us and everything, uh, they all had their next gen t-shirts on for the first time. So we took a big picture, um, afterwards. And that's what I recall is, uh, the whole group of people being very, very supportive from the Bay area, um, and happy that we had done well. And I, and I tell people, you know, this is when competitors talk to me about, what do I think of their routine and this and that? I'm like, you know, you have to you have to really trust yourselves and go with what you want to put on the floor and not worry about what the judges think or anybody else. Because if Dominic and I would have cared, we we would have changed our routine. We might not have won, right? Right. So uh, sometimes you just have to do you dance for yourself, basically. You dance for yourself and your partner, and then just let it go. Yeah. We happened to be in the right place at the right time with what that particular group of judges wanted to see that year. That, that's all it was. Right. You've been involved in the Open as a judge over the years more recently. Um, what was the Open like back then? Well, um, this was back in the days of the Disneyland ballroom and the pit, as we used to call it, because, mm -hmm. the, you know, the floor was, was down below and up above were all the tables looking down at it. And so the energy in there was pretty incredible. It wasn't my first time on the US Open floor. Um, I've had, <laughs> I had a very 
humorous, although disastrous, uh, debut performance at the Open a couple years before that. I think it was like 19, I want to say 1985, maybe, something, 86, 87. I, I don't know. I, I can't remember dates. But um, I entered the, the Jack and Jill, and back then it was just the Jack and Jill, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't, um, there were no, no levels or anything like that. And uh, my name was called. I go out there and out walks this fellow that I've never seen before, which is fine. He's thinking, you know, he's probably from another state or something. And he says to me, he says, I'm not sure I should have entered this contest. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm just here staying at the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and they told me there's this little dance contest. So I thought I'd enter it. And I'm like, do you know West Coast Swing? And he goes, what's that? Oh and then the music starts. So he does the old ball, uh, you know, barroom jerk and twirl kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's just hauling me around the floor back and forth, you know. <laughs> and I look over and I see um, my friends and they're all laughing. <laughs> they're my friends. <laughs> and they were all laughing at me because it was just hideous, you know. Um, and it was like, well, Okay, welcome to the U.S. Open. And I, you know, I tried to be as nice as I could to him, and you know, smile, and it's like whatever. <laughs> so back then, it was a little less organized in in, in the sense of um, vetting people for different competitions and stuff like right. that. But but that was that was kind of a fun memory, you know. Um, but it was it was more of a party. I mean. It was exciting and it was, you know, bragging rights and all of that. And there was a little bit of money involved, but it was mostly just an opportunity to see people that we don't get to see very often. Because when I started dancing, there were only a couple of conventions a year that I knew of, right. um, you know, Seattle, uh, Phoenix, um, just, you know, just a couple and the U.S. Open. So there were only a few opportunities to meet up with friends and to share information and to trade patterns and footwork and teaching techniques and stuff like that. Um, So it was a lot more social, even though there was competition and some people took it extremely seriously. For me, it was um, a lot more about just seeing people that I don't get to see that often. So that that's what it was for me. Yeah, that sounds great. So speaking of the Open Jack and Jill, just the Jack and Jill, uh, you won the Open Jack and Jill a few years later with friend of the show, Tom Paderna. Uh, what oh, was yeah. that experience like? Because wasn't he one of your students? Well, um, yes, but he, I also consider him, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, just a peer. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, he took classes from me and all that. But um, Tom, the thing I remember most about that was that I had inadvertently, uh, I, in my career, I've only invented that I can think of two things. <laughs> I'm not very creative. I'm very good at um, teaching other people's material and giving them credit for it, but I'm not that super creative myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one move that back in the day used to be called a whippet, I don't know what people are calling it these days, um, but it, it as somebody led it improperly and I managed to keep my balance by doing a leverage lean out and in a 180. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. So I showed it to Tom and he really liked it. And so he, he decided let's take it into a 360. You know, this is mm-hmm. before the open, right? We were just goofing around here in the Bay area. And I remember showing it to um, Jack Carey and Annie Hirsch, who were our mentors. 
and um, they were totally unimpressed. They were like, eh, <laughs> not, not, not that, not that impressed. And we were like, well, we really like it. So, um, but we had never, we actually, we had never done the 360. We had just talked about it. We'd always done it as a 180. And then um, we drew each other in the Jack and Jill. And uh, I remember he put me into it. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I wonder if he's going to go for the 360 or just do the 180. And he went for the 360. And I was like laughing because I thought that was really ballsy of him to do something that we had only <laughs> talked about, but had never tried in a competition. You know, I thought that right. was really cool. So I'm laughing because that's me. And uh, as we walked off the floor, Jack grabbed my arm and he said, I was wrong. That that was really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I got Jack Carey. Yeah, that's quite the compliment. At a girl. Yeah, that was that was <laughs> like the highlight. I mean, I didn't need to, to win after that. I thought <laughs> I thought I already won because I got Jack's approval on the move, you know. Um, yeah. So that's what I remember from from that uh from that competition is that it was uh that's where where Tom threw out the move that we had talked about. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. So at this point you had been dancing for a while, you had won the classic division. Um you said that you started working more at the studio because of the recession um and had lost your job. At what point did you just decide to stick with being a dance professional? Well, um, for a while after I had lost my job as a landscape architect and the prospects of getting more work that way didn't look so good, I actually went to the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine to study acupuncture and herbs in San Francisco. And I was halfway through that program while I was still trying to, I was still teaching dance and I was kind of burning the candles at both ends. And I came to the realization that, um, if if I if I did acupuncture incorrectly and stuck the needle in the wrong place, I could puncture somebody's lung or kill them. <laughs> and if I taught a dance step wrong, then the next week I'd have to teach it right. <laughs> right. And then the stress level was like, you know what? I I, I really like teaching dance. I'm I'm gonna go that route. So <laughs> I gave up uh, I gave up my studies and went full bore into um to teaching uh dance and and i loved it i mean i just mm-hmm. love i love teaching and the only reason why i ever competed was because people told me uh in order to get students you have to win trophies because mm-hmm. then you're respected and people will take your classes and i was like well i want people to take my classes so i guess a better inner contest but i i never enjoyed competition Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not one of I'm not I'm not wired that way. And I've realized over the years there are a couple other pros out there that are like me that have kind of said on the side, you know, I really I don't like competing. I like social dancing. It's like that's where my heart is. My heart is social dancing and teaching and um and it, you know, I was I was really really happy to retire from competition. And I I think it's kind of ironic that I judge and chief judge because I don't like to compete myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, neither did, neither did Annie Hirsch, you know, Annie Hirsch didn't right. like to compete either. So yeah. And she was the the one that dragged me into judging. Uh, I remember at one point asking her, 
why she was grooming me to be a chief judge, you know, and why she was throwing all this work at me. And she goes, because you don't want it. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know how much work it is. And and so you don't want to do it. You want to go social dance, but you'll actually do the work. So that's why right. I'm giving it to you. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting how you fall into different roles and stuff. Yeah, was it the that advice that you got that uh, to go and compete so you could teach that drove you to do routines at the open? Or was yeah, that just that out of the, interest? Well, that that was for the U.S. Open was part of it, um, yeah. definitely. But I also did a routine before that with a, a fellow named Bob Rogers, who um, I don't know if he was more of a jitterbug dancer. And mm-hmm. um, he and I put together um, a showcase routine uh, that was for dance fever auditions. So we wanted to get on television so, I mean, if you look at the old dance fever tapes, you'll see, you know, Lance and Marianne and I think Charlotte's on there. There's quite quite a few, uh, you know, of the Southern California crowd mm-hmm. got in on that. And so uh, we put together a routine that was extremely Macadillion. And we, we decided, okay, what gets you on TV? Well, it's gimmicks, it's aerials, you know, it's, you know, whatever sells kind of thing. Right. So we did this horrible routine that was <laughs> it started off we were in 50s rock and roll kind of costumes and um i was blowing bubbles on my lifts popping them at the top of the lifts you know that was one of our gimmicks <laughs> <laughs> and then in the middle of the routine you know off comes my velcro skirt into a little this was back in the 80s you know into a little punk rock outfit where we did some punk rock dancing and you know it was just it was just it was anything we could think of to get on TV, you know, with lots right. of time of me being in the air, right? And we managed to get a spot on the television show, which was our whole goal, was just to get on TV. We, we really completely sold our souls to do it. But it was <laughs> uh, very educational and a lot of fun. And then um, we were actually doing the routine around the Bay Area, different venues. And I remember... The, the ceiling at the Avenue Ballroom was kind of low. And there's one move where, you know, he picks me up and I basically am in a headstand position. You know, it's a sidecar thing to the side, to the side, and then straight up. And my heels got stuck in the ceiling. <laughs> oh, no. Like your high heels? <laughs> yeah. yeah, my high heels. Oh, my God. Then, you know, where it's three inch high heels. Yeah. And uh, my heels were stuck in the ceiling. <laughs> couldn't get me down. <laughs> and I realized, you know, if I fall and I. And I fall and I hit myself on the head. You know, I could, I could die. I, I don't think I want to do this anymore. <laughs> so I stopped doing aerials after that. But it was, it was very good. I'm glad I did it because I do have some understanding and appreciation for, for showcase, um, right. having, having done one routine uh, as limited as it was. So that was, that was. That was just for fun because I'd never done aerials before. I wanted to see, and and back then, of course, I weighed a lot less and was littler, and he was strong, so it was fun for for him to throw me around. Plus, I was younger, and I didn't think I could break back then. So, (laughs) you try all sorts of stuff when you're young. Right, ignorance is bliss. Uh, (laughs) um, At what point did you retire from competitions? I don't remember the year. It was kind of a 
it's kind of a gradual realization that um, of a, well, there were a lot of factors that came into play. One was um, my daughter was getting better and better, and I could see that she was coming into the champion division. And it occurred to me that if people like myself didn't start being more active in the role of judging or chief judging or other areas, you know, I'd have to either compete against her or there wouldn't be room for people like her. And I thought, you know, that's not how I see myself. I see myself as my goal is to have next generation standing on my shoulders so that they can be better than my generation was, right? right? So I thought, well, this is a good time for me to exit out because then, you know, I want to be there in the audience cheering her on. I don't want to be competing against her. That's that's no good. Partly because you beat my beat the pants off me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but just you know, I just didn't appeal to me. And the music had changed, and um, the kind of music they were playing in the competitions. Uh, wasn't the kind of music that I felt like I could dance my best to um, <laughs> and express myself to. And I could also see that in the division that I was in, the champions weren't all that happy when they drew me. Um, some of them, I could tell, they, they really would prefer to have drawn somebody else. So it's mm. like, you know, you don't, I don't want to be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't want to be in a relationship with me. Right. So if they're not going to enjoy the time on the floor, then I shouldn't be there. So I decided that this was, you know, all those things put together. Uh, it's probably a good idea for me to exit out of champions. And then I went into masters for a couple of years and um, that was okay. But then I realized, you know, I really don't like competing. Um, mm. I kind of just did it because I had been doing it. And then I just thought about it and I decided, you know, I, I think what happened was that there are a couple of events where they needed judges for masters. And so I volunteered to not dance because they had extra follows in the competition. They didn't need me. Um, and I said, you know, I, I just soon I'll, I'll be happy to judge. And then I realized I didn't miss it. Um, so I don't even, I can't even tell you the last time I competed and I'm, I'm very happy that I don't compete anymore. It's, mm -hmm. uh, I'm I'm much happier being a social dancer. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you have worn many hats, um, but one of them is also event director. And I wanted to ask you about the event that you started back in 99 called Swing Break. Um, the event was the first event to degender competitions in a time when that was not the norm or widely accepted the way it is today. I'm curious what the reaction was to the event. Um, what did you expect kind of going into that? And what happened to the event? Well, I'm not sure if it, I don't know if I can say it was the first. I think it might have been the first on the West Coast, but okay. I can't speak to what happened on the East Coast. I do know that there were um, other pockets of people doing. Um, what we would call the gendered teams and dancing and things like that. Because one of the teams I actually featured at swing break. Mm. Um, I remember cause Debbie Welty was in the team and I wish I could remember the name of her, the team that she was on um, shoot double trouble or something like that. I, I, I can't remember it exactly, but 
uh, anyway, uh, so I don't want to claim to be uh, the first because I, I don't know. Sure. But I do know that I had been lobbying for many years to have certain rules changed. Um, the rule that said that men should lead and women should follow from day one, I thought was crazy. Um, but then, you know, at the Avenue Baltimore I taught, the owner always called everybody leaders and followers. We never referred to people as men and women. Mm. Um, and and same thing with my Berkeley classes. It was just a given. It was leads and follows. And and we never, I don't know, it just it never occurred to me that it should be segregated by gender or anything like that. So when things got started to get organized, I, I really balked at that rule. In fact, that was one reason why I stopped being a member of the World Swing Dance Council is because I kept lobbying for that rule to be changed and uh, they didn't do it. So I just decided I didn't want to support the organization anymore. Mm. So I, um, I would, you know, I stopped paying dues for that. And then I remember um, lobbying certain individual event directors for changes. Like John Wheaton was uh, one of the first, I think, to allow me to um, lead my daughter in the program. And originally his rules were, you know, a male lead and a female follow. And I remember another pro danced with my daughter at Monterey Swing Fest and won um, Top Teacher Award because because her, of her placement. And I went to John. I said, John, you know, look at it from a business point of view. I, you know, if you can't, you can't convince somebody on a moralistic view. Sometimes I find if you approach it on a business view, sure. <laughs> it works better. So Money I, talks. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I said, you know, somebody else gets credit for Samantha, and I'm the one that taught her to dance, not this person that actually danced with her. And he said, you're absolutely right. That That isn't fair to you. So he changed his rules. Um, and I don't know how much of it was because he just also felt that it wasn't fair um, mm-hmm. or how much of it was a business decision. But after that, I was able to bring in all my students, both male and female, and dance with them in whatever role I wanted to dance with them at the, in the programs. And I really appreciated his, um, his willingness to be open to that because a lot of other um, events weren't. So then I approached him about, well, why don't you, why do you have this rule that says men, men have to lead and women have to follow? And, you know, I've been pestering a lot of people about it and he got a little exasperated with me. He said, Kelly, if you feel so strongly about it, why don't you, um, you know, put your money where your mouth is and run your own event. And, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he actually <laughs> partnered with me. Um, he was sort of the the helper, the co-partner, or whatever you want to call it. But behind the scenes, I was sort of the face of Swing Break. But mm-hmm. he dealt with the hotel, and um, I got all my friends involved in it. And I was really excited about it because it was a completely different kind of event instead of having a showcase and classic routine i hired people and gave them performance fees for doing their showcase and classic routines in between the competitions as part of a, a show throughout the weekend so that was something that was different i also had um seminars which were different i had uh, jack and and sylvia do a history of swing thing and i had mario do a whole thing on push and whip and you know um just just different stuff you know, that, mm-hmm. that I really believed in that, um, 
that other events weren't offering at the time. And then, of course, the whole, um, you know, I don't care if you're male or female or whatever, you can lead or follow. And that got me into a lot of trouble um, with a lot of people that I actually care about. They were against the idea. And that really, that was really disheartening, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and, um, and then after the first, I mean, the first year we had 800 people, which was a lot for 1999, you know, I mean, that was a huge turnout. Yeah. And then in the year 2000, um, it went down to like 700 people. And then in between 99 and 2000, I got a lot of feedback from people saying they were going to boycott um, the competitions. They didn't believe in what I was doing. They thought it wasn't right. And, you know, I, I remember this one fellow from the East Coast called me and he was just really upset. He's like, you know, well, I'm not sexually attracted to men. So if I draw a man, I'm, you know, I'm handicapped in the competition. Uh, it's not fair. I should get another draw. And I said, oh, so you know, sexual attraction is a criteria for you. And he goes, well, yeah. And I said, so if I draw you in a competition, I get to, I get to redraw since I'm not sexually attracted to you. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> he, he didn't like that at all. No. Um, and, you know, he said he was going to make sure all his friends didn't come and this and that and the other. And at the time, you know, I'm a, I'm a single mom on a dance teacher's income. Um, and I had just bought a house. I was very proud of doing and I thought you know I could lose my house if people don't show up mm -hmm. and um, the advice I got from people that I really ex respected was we'll run the event and just change the rules back so that um, you know it's it's normal and and then everybody will support you and I thought, well, that the whole reason why I did this is because I, I felt that the professionals should be paid a little bit more. I felt that, you know, the rules were not right. And do I really want to just sell out and go back to be like everybody else for a buck? And I thought, nope, it's not worth it. So I killed it. And I just said, I'm not running it anymore. But the 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 plus out of it came that a lot more people after that, the Strictly Swings blossomed and the rules changed. So people in Strictly Swings, that was like the crack in the dam kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you did a Strictly Swing, then you could pick your own partner. And so then there was no problem with two women or a woman leading a man or whatever kind of thing. So that kind of opened the door uh, for people to get used to that concept a little bit. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm very proud of it, but it was, you know, it was it was really hard to, to deal with people because to me um, it was just so obvious. Uh, you, you know, it's like I would say, well, you know, if I drew somebody of a different nationality or a different religion, and I said I wasn't going to dance with them, everybody would be up in arms and go, "Well, that's just stupid. That's racist and biased and this and that and the other." But all of a sudden, because it's gender, it's okay to be right. discriminatory. I, I I don't get it. And they go, "Well, that's different." And I never got why that's different. And then um, just a few years ago, a kind of a light bulb went on for me where I realized I was um, actually listening to one of your podcasts. Um, and uh, somebody described a dance as it's a sexy dance. And immediately I was like, what? <laughs> because I don't see the dance that way. Mm. I mean, 
the, the dance can be sensual, it can be sexy, it can be intimate, it can be humorous, it can be smooth, it can be, uh, you know, fun, athletic, uh, it could be an exercise, you know, it, it, it could be anything that anybody wants it to be. And that's one reason why I love this dance. I mean, right. it, it, you can't put it in a, in a particular box. I, just, I mean, when I started dancing, I was doing, you know, international ballroom um, and American style, both international and American style, uh, smooth and Latin. And I remember balking at the idea that all these different dances had their own personality that you had to embody, you know, while you're dancing. And I remember doing a rumba with my teacher and he's saying, you have to act as though you want me. And I'm like, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't, I can't pretend that I do. And he was just exasperated with me, you know, because I wasn't fulfilling that. Um, and with swing, it's like you can be whatever you want and it can change from person to person and dance to dance and song to song. Mm. Um, and that variety is wonderful. But just because one person sees the dance through a certain lens doesn't mean everybody else has to see it that way. Right. Um, and so then I realized that, well, there is a lot of people that look at the dance through a more um, sexualized lens than I do. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I just see it completely different. I mean, my favorite dance partner on the planet is my daughter. So... Mm -hmm. To have somebody tell me, well, this dance is a sexy dance, that, that feels creepy to me because, you know, I like right. dancing with Samantha, you know, um, and that's not my experience of the dance. So I think that depending upon who you're talking to um, and what their interests are, when you describe the dance, I think it's important to, you know, couch it in terms of what resonates with them. If they're looking for something that will give them exercise, great. If they're looking for something that will give them a more uh, social bond connection in the community, great. That's something. If they're just looking for something that's really uplifting and happy, then, you know, happy, uplifting music, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, there, there's, just, there's just a lot of different pieces. It's not just one thing. Right. Um, and so that was sort of an interesting kind of realization to me that not everybody sees it the way I see it, which is all these different possibilities. And so I guess if you're looking at it as only through um, that view of a sort of a, a sexualized view, then you're only going to want to dance with people that you are attracted to in that way. Um, but that's not what the dance is for me at all. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that is that's a very compassionate way of looking at it because I feel like the, the easy way to look at it is just, yeah, people are, you know, I, I think there are certain people who are just uncomfortable dancing with the same sex period. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's more homophobic than like about their own personal comfort with the same gender than it is. Um, and I'm not saying homophobic as in it's like extreme, but like um, in that vein, as opposed to how they view the dance per se. Um and I, I feel like that's uh, certainly a, a big portion of people. I'm curious, though, what, you know, you said a lot of your peers or people you respected um, that they wanted you to change the rules. You know, I understand event goers who would boycott for whatever personal reasons they have. But I'm curious what the feedback you got from any of your your peers or people you respected who maybe were opposed to it? Were there 
other reasons in there other than it should be a man and a woman dancing together. No, that was it. That was um, just it. So was it more and, of a yeah. traditionalist view or was it a sexual view of the dance? Or both. I thought it was I thought it was both and also there was I thought there was a lot of homophobia about it um, mm-hmm. and I just didn't understand that um, and maybe that's because you know I spent you know from my late teens on in the San Francisco Bay Area and because right. I was raised by very open-minded liberal people who when I was in high school didn't mind me dating somebody who was a person of color you know I mean they didn't have a problem with it I mean it, you know, I, I I just I I I just think that they looked at it in a different way. And you know, I've been teaching in my classes. I've been encouraging people to learn to both read and follow for forty years, and I've seen mm-hmm. a huge difference from when I first started doing it um, to where it is now. It is so much more the norm now. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I started, people thought I was a little weird. And especially when I would go back in my day, I, I never traveled internationally. I quit traveling um, before it became the international boom. I was doing national uh, workshops, you know, all over um, the United States kind of thing. And I learned really quickly that when in Rome, you got to do as the Romans do. Because when mm-hmm. I was in Texas, it didn't go over to say leads and follows at all. You know, I was schooled on, you know, it's, it's guys and gals, you know, I mean, this is, <laughs> you know, we don't do it that way. And yeah. I even found that in some studios, they would actually charge the men more than they would charge the women, supposedly because they said the man's part was so much harder than the woman's, but it was really to get more women in the door because they thought women didn't have as much disposable income as men. And if they got the women in, the men would come. I mean, there was all this, you know, you know, cultural underlying stereotype stuff going on that I didn't sure. necessarily agree with. Right. Um, so I, I learned really quickly that I was considered weird um, uh, for, for my views, but I, I, I really felt that knowing how to both lead and follow made me a much better whatever, you know, um, and, and I wanted my students to have that experience. And I also wanted my, all my students to be empowered because one of the things I find is that certain personalities prefer to lead and certain personalities prefer to follow and they don't necessarily fall into gender categories. Um, right. And you, you don't know that unless you're doing both parts. And for me, one of the, really wonderful consequences of this whole movement, if you will, is is seeing somebody who is normally in um, one box learn to be in another role and enjoy it so much and blossom and become more of a whole person and more their authentic self as a result. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I, I love to lead and I love to follow and I love having the choice. And I know that um, if I'm dancing, say I'm dancing at a dance and there's a whole lot of women sitting down and they only know how to follow, they don't know how to lead, then I'm going to be leading most of the night just so we have more people on the floor. Or I'm going to be doing tandem so I get two more women out on the floor. To me, it's mm-hmm. all about let's get 
as many people on the floor dancing as possible. Who cares whether they start with their left or their right foot and they're initiating or they're responding to something, right? It's mm -hmm. everybody's on the floor dancing. Um, so I look at it in a different lens, I think, than some people do, which is also, um, you know, this is kind of going off on a strange tangent, but the whole newer philosophy of active following and responsive leading, I'm sure you're very familiar with that, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's like asking the passenger to drive the car. They can do it, but it's a lot of work and it's kind of tricky and you can only do it going super slow on a straight road. You don't want to do it on a country road going 90 miles an hour. You know what I mean? Right. So to, to the slower lyrical music, it makes sense. Um, but the, the skill level in the communication uh, technique to telegraph who's initiating, who's responding and all that is, is super, super high. So right. when it's done at a, all-star advanced champion level it, it can be very cool but my experience on a social dance floor um, with people who don't understand the rules of communication and aren't really skilled at it it's kind of a train wreck um, mm -hmm. and it's not fun it's it's like people are jockeying for control it's it's the same feeling i get sometimes with people who want to switch with me and i love switching but you know i want to know what the rules are and not everybody goes by the same rules. So all of a sudden I'll be dancing with somebody and they just grab the, the wheel, so to speak, and start leading. And it's like, I wasn't prepared for that. They didn't signal it. We didn't even talk about it before we started the dance that they were going to do that. And it's, it's, I'm worried I'm going to get hurt more than anything else, but it's so abrupt and it doesn't, it doesn't flow. It's not, it's not as much fun to me. So, right. you know, I, I, I just want, what I enjoy about the dance is the communication between the two people. And if the communication isn't there, whether I'm leading or following or switching or whatever, then it's, it's not as much fun as when there is really clear communication. So I like dancing with traditional people that just want to do one role and that's fine. And I like dancing with people who want to switch and we play by the same rule book. That's cool. And I mean, if somebody wants to be the, uh, responsive leader and make me the active follower. I'm, I'm less comfortable with that, but at least I know what the rules are because I've educated myself on that stuff, but I'd really rather just leave if they want me to be in control. It's just easier for me to, to lead. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, 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 I, I find that interesting, but culturally and socially, I think it's a really interesting development. Um, and I think it's, in the long run, it will be a positive impact on the dance community. I'm just not so sure. I mean, I, I just want to make sure everybody can actually even follow first before they try to flip the roles. <laughs> right. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs>We will continue this conversation in next week's episode, when we'll talk more about degendering competitions, our experiences competing in non-traditional roles, and Kelly's experience as a swing content judge at the Open this year, as well as how she came up with the tool for measuring swing content in routines. I really appreciate that Kelly is honest and forthcoming, but she's also fair and pretty optimistic. She sees different sides of an issue, but gives people the benefit of the doubt. 
I thought she articulated her views of the dance very well, pointing out how she doesn't see this thing we do as sexy or sexual, but more about connecting with a partner. And I thought she made a good point about defining our expectations in the partnership. How often do we struggle to connect with our partners because we have different expectations? Different expectations of what we thought would happen, different expectations of what we thought our roles are, and different expectations of what we think this dance is or is supposed to be. This is especially challenging when we learn from different places, are influenced by different people along our journeys, and as we change our expectations depending on what stage of our journey we're in. I'm not saying I want everyone to dance the same way or even be taught the same way, but wouldn't it be great if we could all agree on the essence of what this dance is about? The expression of music with two partners in different but equitable roles? Can we at least get aligned on the vision of success for this dance, and then we can follow our own paths to get there? Maybe that's just me longing for more alignment among dancers, so we can all feel more connected to each other and more connected to the dance. But what do you think? What is this dance about to you? Is it about sexuality and masculine and feminine and romantic relationships? Or is it about connection and partnership? Or is it about expression and artistry? Or maybe just about having fun with friends? Share your thoughts with me and your fellow listeners. You can post a comment on the website, you can respond to our posts on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at thenakedtruthwcs, and you know what? Go ahead and get a Twitter account just so you can follow us there, at NakedTruthWCS. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric. And my name is Kelly. And And that's that's The the Naked Naked Truth. Truth. making sure all of my like alerts are off the names have been changed to protect the innocent (laughs) (laughs) right modify your voice with the uh, editing program (laughs) there Um, you go (laughs)